So we catch up again with Jesus as he walks from town to town, healing people and teaching them about the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus is talking to poor people, day laborers, farm workers, housewives, widows, people who are regularly stepped on by the Roman soldiers and the rich people. Jesus was a poor man. He grew up poor. These are the people he's talking to. And he teaches them using parables, stories drawn from their everyday lives. They're stories where the good guys and the bad guys are easily recognizable. And anyone who wants to understand can understand Jesus' message. It's when folks have their own agenda that Jesus' words become unintelligible. Last week, Jesus told the story of a man sowing seed. And there was this bit where the disciples asked Jesus why he speaks in parables. And I explained last week how Jesus refers to some prophecy in the Hebrew Bible to explain that parables leave the choice with the person as to whether or not they will use their God-given eyes to see and their ears to hear or not. We went up, we, we looked at that prophecy last week. And right after the parable of the sower, according to uh, Mark and Luke anyway, Jesus tells the disciples that everything that is secret will come to light. And the light, which in this context would mean his light, the light of the good news, is not coming into the world to be ignored, but is coming to be undeniable and obvious. It is a light set high on a lampstand. Jesus says, carefully consider the things you hear. Be careful how you weigh things. What you meet out to others is what will be meted out to you and then some. That's on point with his previous, quote, do unto others sorts of teachings. But then Jesus makes a really strange remark. He says, to the one who has, more will be given. And to the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Now, this makes no sense unless you step back to consider the context. This remark is in the context of that previous statement about how generous and kind and forgiving you are. Jesus is talking about how you you yourself measure things out. Jesus says, take care in how you do that. Because if you hold what you have to give with an open hand, giving it freely to others, you'll find you have more and more to give. To the one who has, more will be given. So we're going to wrestle with this a little more in our breakout groups. But for now, we're going to move forward with Jesus' stories. Jesus um, expands, you know, as he talks about that particular verse, he expands the idea with another parable about a sower. He starts out the same way with the familiar scene of a man sowing seeds in a field. But in this story, when the sower goes to sleep at night, the worst happens. A bad actor sneaks in and sows weeds into the field. So this is exactly what the person who is tightly holding their earthly treasure is afraid of, right? 
Jesus is addressing this exact issue. It's as if someone asks him, well, if we hold our treasure with open hands, what happens when someone does do us wrong? So Jesus sets it up. And in Jesus' story, he says the men who sow the good seed are alarmed when the seeds begin to sprout and they see weeds coming up in the field. Now, remember that Jesus is speaking to day laborers, tenants, migrant workers, and slaves. They know this is not the men's field. The field and the seed would be owned by a great landowner. And now there's bound to be trouble. The workers go to the landowner and say, did you give us bad seed to sow? Look, there's weeds among the wheat. What should we do? Should we dig out the weeds? But the great landowner says, no, if you try to do that while they're just sprouting, you might harm the grain seedlings. No, just just let them grow side by side. Then when they are full grown, it will be plain, which is good grain and which is a worthless weed. Now, this is great advice to remember when you're in a situation where you think you need to protect a group from some bad apples among the bunch, but you're not really sure if you're reading the situation correctly or if it's the right time to act. Jesus says it's okay to wait until the fruit is more obvious. The landowner tells the workers, when the seedlings are full grown, it will be plain which is good grain and which is a worthless seed. Then the reapers who come after you can easily gather the weeds and toss them out to be burned and gather the good grain safely into my barn. And that's the end of the parable. Jesus is saying that God will set everything right in the end. Evil deeds will end up on the trash heap and all else will be safely gathered in. I hope you're beginning to see that this is a big theme with Jesus. How we do what we do is important. Holding all things with an open hand is important. Letting God be responsible for the successes and for the failures is important. So it's no surprise that Jesus keeps hitting on this same theme using parable after parable. In this next one, he tells us not to worry about how tiny our contribution seems to be. We're only called to do our small part faithfully. God will take care of the rest. Jesus says, when a mustard seed is planted, it is the tiniest of seeds. But when it grows, it's larger than any other plant in the garden, so large that birds can come and nest in it. This is what the kingdom of heaven is like. We plant the tiniest seed. It looks hopeless to us, useless. But whatever we have in our hands to give, that's what we give. And we can go to sleep at night in peace, knowing that God will work to grow even that tiny pitiful seed into a tree so large that birds will find rest in it. That's how this is all supposed to work. Jesus says, here's another way to look at it. When a woman is kneading dough to make bread, only the tiniest bit of yeast is needed to make a huge batch of dough rise. As long as she works that yeast in well, kneading it throughout the whole dough, 
That's what the kingdom of heaven is like. That's how it's set up to work. Matthew, being Matthew, and being all about how Jesus fulfills prophecy, takes this opportunity to say that Jesus speaks in parables to fulfill the words of the prophet in Psalm 78. Psalms, the psalmist says, I will speak in parables and utter dark sayings which are from the beginning. And he, the psalmist tells this whole sorry story of how Israel rejected God's goodness over and over and over again. But his story has a happy ending. And the psalmist writes how God will rescue Israel and watch over them as a tender shepherd. So why did Matthew think this quote was important? Why does he think Jesus is fulfilling this, this quote about speaking in parables? What does that have to add to the context of Jesus? We already know he speaks in parables. And the important part, as we have seen in other class series, is usually not the snippet that Matthew quotes, but it's usually embedded in the context of that snippet of the original passage, a context that the listeners would already know. And sure enough, this bit about parables in Psalm 78 is clarified a couple of verses later when the psalmist explains that the parables are being told so that generations to come will know that they should trust God and keep his commands. That is exactly what Jesus is doing with these parables. Matthew hits the nail right on the head. Jesus is speaking in parables, stories that can be easily remembered and retold for generations to come. That's why Jesus is a fulfillment of this prophecy. We're sitting here now, generations later, retelling these parables. For some reason, the disciples don't get it. They cannot wrap their heads around leaving the weeds in with the good grain. So they ask Jesus about it later. And Jesus spells it out for them saying, guys, I'm the one sowing the seed. The field is the world and the people in the kingdom of heaven are the good seeds. But the weeds are the sons of evil and the enemy sowing them is the devil. The word translated here as devil is diabolos. It is the same root we get our word diabolical from. But in ancient Greek usage, this word does not mean a red devil with a pitchfork. Diabolos is the normal Greek word for slanderer, someone who accuses falsely, who slanders what is good. It's simply a false accuser. And that's what diabolos or devil means throughout the whole New Testament. Every single time you see the word devil, it is helpful to code switch that in your head to slanderer or accuser, false accuser. And that will strip away some of the shellac we've wrapped around the world word devil over the centuries. This is a really important concept if you think it through. Who would evil personified be accusing? Us. 
This is the voice of accusation that we can so easily let narrate our lives. And it is a voice that also slanders God. This is the voice that calls what is good evil and calls what is evil good. Whether you personify evil as Jesus does here so the disciples can understand him, or whether you see evil kind of more generally as a, a force in the, in the world, in the cosmos, this evil voice, this narrative is very, very real. Jesus is showing us how to fight this destructive narrative. Jesus is saying that what is good is true. And what is evil is false by definition. This is a basic motif that runs consistently through Jesus' parables. Jesus takes it as a given that we instinctively know good fruit from bad fruit. We know good from evil. So now Jesus moves on to explain the end of the parable to his disciples. He says, the harvesters who come at the end are the angels at the end of the age. Obviously, that's in time, in time language. I'm going to quote the NRSV updated edition here. The son of man will send his angels and they will collect out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all evildoers. And they will throw them in the furnace of fire where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Well, that's pretty scary. Let's look at this a little more closely. First, notice that the angels are after anything and anyone who causes sin. God is interested in the roots of sin, the causes of sin. The Greek word here is skandala, which literally means bait or snare or trap. It is a word indicating willfulness intentionally, willfully enticing someone to sin. That's what's in view here. The next thing to notice is the word evildoers. This is actually two Greek words. The first one means those who do, and the second word means against law. So it's often translated as those who are lawless. But in the context of scripture, this would I think, mean those who are actively working against God's commands. If you, they, they are the ones making it hard to do good. They work for injustice. We have come to understand that God's commands are life-giving, full of blessing, and rich with healing. So those who act against God's commands, against God's law, would mean those who are working to bring death to deprive people of God's blessing, and to bring them harm. These words are not speaking of people who stumble from time to time or are trying but miss the mark. These words are not talking about people who are trying to follow God. This isn't even about people who aren't particularly trying to follow God but are nevertheless doing their best in their own way. This whole passage is speaking to serious, consistent, destructive, and evil intentions. And that is clearly going to have to be set right. So how does God set things right? 
at least so far in scripture, God has always set things right by becoming present. God arrives in our midst and his very holiness burns away all that is dross and leaves only what is pure and holy. So it's no surprise to hear Jesus say that these willful, intentional ones who try to destroy what is good, as well as all the causes of sin, will be thrown into the furnace of fire where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is so often portrayed as hell. But if this were hell in the classic sense, it would be eternal fiery torment and there would be screams of agony and pain. And that's not what this says. Jesus is describing a place of extreme regret. This is a place where the secret works of the evildoers have been brought to light, where their worst nightmares of exposure are realized, where all their dross has been passed through a holy fire and nothing left to show for it. This is the place where they finally realize fully and completely what they've done and who they've done it to. And what is their response? They weep. They weep and they gnash their teeth in regret. And that all makes sense if this furnace of fire is the fire of the Holy Spirit that reveals all things and burns away all dross. God's presence is a holy fire, and nothing evil can hide in its light. God has said that we are part of bringing this light into the world right now. We can ask the Holy Spirit to burn away our dross right now. God will draw near to us right now. And when that happens, Jesus says, the righteous, the word for just, will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Let anyone with ears listen. What a beautiful picture. And I think it leaves room for the evildoers to have a conversation with God. We'll watch for this as we move on, but I agree with my friend Susan, who says, the God I know would visit hell every day and ask if anyone wants to come out. The disciples must have raised their eyebrows and shot the side eye to each other. It's obvious that Jesus isn't at all sure they understand what he's saying. So he gives them three more examples. <laughs> he says, the kingdom of heaven is like this. Imagine a man finding a treasure hidden in a field. He cannot believe his luck. He quickly reburies that treasure and bouncing with joy, he sells everything he has so he can buy that field. Or like this, imagine a merchant searching and searching for fine pearls. And one day he finds the most valuable pearl he's ever seen. So he sells everything in order to buy it. Are you getting the picture? Jesus asks. The kingdom of heaven is the tiny good that is mixed in with all the bad. It's like when you throw a net into the sea and drag the catch ashore. Once it's ashore, you sort it out. 
You keep the good fish and throw out the bad fish. That's what it'll be like when the angels come at the end of the age. They will sort the evil from the just and the evil will be thrown into the furnace of fire where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Are you sure you've got this? The disciples nod their heads up and down. Jesus gives them one last example. He says, so think of it this way. Think about a scribe who becomes a disciple in the kingdom of heaven. (laughs) I bet the disciples bust out laughing at that. The scribes, the religious lawyers, have been trying to stamp out the good news of the kingdom. But Jesus says, if a scribe, a religious lawyer, becomes a disciple in the kingdom of heaven, he will be a pearl of great price because he will be able to bring out of his treasure what is new and what is old. I added that pearl of great price phrase so you would understand how this verse links to what Jesus has just been saying. It's not explicitly in this verse, but it is implied in the text and it is definitely in the immediate context. And if you think about it, it makes total sense. A religious lawyer will have spent his life studying God's word. And if he suddenly, quote, gets it and realizes how it all connects and that he can be part of the good news, he will be able to bring all the new teachings and the old together in ways that just light people's hearts up. His words will be all that much more insightful because of what he already understands about God's commands. Well, Jesus has been teaching his disciples a long time now. And he's been teaching by the shores of the Sea of Galilee, Lake Gennesaret, and it's starting to get dark. And Jesus says to his disciples, come on, let's cross over to the other side of the lake. So they all pile into some boats and head out. Things start off fine. All the boats are happily bobbing along in the water, but then a huge windstorm arises and waves start crashing over the boat. The men are afraid for their lives. The boat is in danger of sinking, but poor exhausted Jesus is sound asleep in the back of the boat. The disciples apparently think he's faking it because they shake him awake and say, Rabbi, don't you care whether we drown? Well, of course Jesus cares. He was just sound asleep. He wasn't ignoring them. Jesus drags himself up and sternly warns the wind and says to the sea, silence, be muzzled. And the wind is stilled and there is a great calm. And Jesus says to his disciples, why are you so timid? Do you still not trust? Well, if the storm scared the disciples, Jesus calming the storm absolutely terrifies them. They huddle together saying, who is this guy? Even the wind and the sea listen to him. Well, they make it safely to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, to the region of the Gerasenes, where they immediately meet a man possessed by multiple demons. Now, this is a little bit strange geographically, and I'm going to show you why. There are 10 
uh, thriving Greco-Roman cities east of the Sea of Galilee that are referred to as the Decapolis. Um, and, and the scripture says that Jesus arrives at, in the Decapolis. Damascus, the capital of Syria, in, is in the north, plus these nine metropolitan areas, mostly to the east of the Jordan River. And look where Gerasat is, which is the city of the Gerasenes. It's one of the 10 cities of the Decapolis, but look how far away from the Sea of Galilee it is. And look how far east of the Jordan it is. It's way down near the end of the Jabbok River. It's not, it's not like it's just a boat ride away across the Sea of Galilee. Here's a 3D map of the area. This is the Sea of Galilee up here in the north. And Gerasah is over here. Look at the terrain. Look how far that is from the Sea of Galilee. It's like 30 miles as the crow flies, not counting climbing up something like a thousand feet in elevation. That really makes no geographic sense in the context of Jesus' normal ministry. And he certainly did not step off a boat into the land of the Gerasenes. So right away, we know to look for other versions of the story. Fortunately for us, this story is in all three of the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And when we compare the three stories, we find some very interesting clues. While both Mark and Luke set the story where the Gerasenes live, Matthew says this whole story takes place in the region of the Gadarenes, not the Gerasenes. And that makes a whole lot more sense. Gadara is here, much closer to the Sea of Galilee. So at least geographically, Matthew's story seems more reliable. Also, Matthew's story is much shorter than both Mark and Luke's. Mark and Luke's versions have a lot more dialogue, description, and drama, which implies that their versions may have been embellished over time. It is usually the shortest version that is based on the earliest source material. Another thing that's interesting is that Mark's version is the longest. We know Mark wrote his gospel first and that Luke often copied him verbatim, adding details. But that's not what looks like happened for this story. Apparently, this story was widespread enough that all three writers had a choice of sources for their material. Mark and Luke used more dramatic versions, while Matthew stuck with a short, no-frills narrative. And it may Matthew's version may actually have been his eyewitness account. So we have to stop here for today because uh, we're out of time. But we'll pick up with this fascinating story next week. In our breakout groups, we're going to go back to that strange quote we saw at the beginning of class, the one where Jesus says, to the one who has, more will be given, and to the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. So this this whole discussion was trampolined off of the kind of two statements that that Jesus made together. One was carefully consider what you hear, which I assume means what people tell you about God or what they tell you about someone. B, 
Be careful how you measure. What you meet out to others is what will be meted out to you and then some. And then the very next thing he says is, to the one who has, more will be given. And to the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. So we were in a couple of groups. And remember that, you know, the other group couldn't hear what you were talking about. So tell each other what you, what your group came up with here. Um, I'm nominating Marlene for the first one. She had such a really exquisite answer. <laughs> well, um, I was talking about, I, I said that that I tried to look at this passage with new eyes based on what you've been teaching us and to sort of strip away what I had always been taught about it, that this was um, sort of, a punishment reward sort of thing between us and God. Um, that that what this had more to do with is that um, what we share with others, what we put out in the world as representative of God, or <clears throat> what, um, what we say about other people. Um, will color how other people see us and how other people see God. That this is is talking about how how do we relate in the world um, with our understanding of a God who is loving and pursuing and caring and delights in us and sees us as precious, as opposed to demanding and judgmental and can only see us through the eyes of the blood of Jesus. And otherwise we're, you know, everything we do is just trash. Um, but more this idea of sort of channeling God's love and value of God's creation. And that that then will draw others to, to God and to us and to each other. Mm, beautiful. Beautiful. I have something I would like to share, which is why I came over here. Um, and then I'm going to go back over there where it's more comfortable. Um, um, I had something happen this week that while we were talking in our little group, it made me think of it. Um, and it's related back to something that happened 20 years ago-ish. Um a series of misfortunate events or unfortunate events, whatever, happened. And um, I was in a wheelchair for three months. My ex-husband lost his job. We had six kids, the youngest of which was two at home. It was trying times. My son, who's will be 23 in June, texted me the other day and he said, mom, have I ever had venison? And I said, why are you asking that? And he said, well, we were doing this thing with a group of people and they served some venison and the flavor tasted very familiar, but I'm trying to figure out why. Did we have venison when I was a little kid? And I got to remind him of the blessings among many, many, many blessings 
that happened during that time, a friend of mine called and said she had two sons and her husband were deer hunting. And she called and said, all three of the guys bagged a buck. Wow. We still have deer meat left from last year. It's still good. It's been in the freezer, blah, blah, blah. Would you like it? I said, absolutely. So we had hamburger and we had steaks and we had meat that we otherwise would not have had, but it was all venison. And so I told my son about what happened back then and the blessing that we got. And he goes, that is so cool. I remember the flavor. (laughs) And I just thought that was such a blessing because A, it's a reminder to me of the things that God did for me in the past. B, it's a reminder for him of the things that God did for him in the past. And the fact that he was two years old and remembers the flavor of deer meat, I mean, that just blew my mind. And so the fact that God did take care of all of our needs, and I could tell you so many things, but I'm not going to go into them all because I'm done talking, it hurts. But so many things that God did for us during that time that we never missed a meal if my kids needed clothes, they were provided without me even, we didn't even tell people, we would just tell God. And there'd be a phone call from the church saying, somebody dropped off this for Ben and this for David. And I'm like, oh, we were praying for that this week. And they were the exact sizes of the things they needed. So yeah, God provides, he really does. And I've seen him do it. So now I'm going to slip off back to my chair. Feel better, feel better, Shirley. It's kind of like I I feel better than I did last Friday and Saturday and Sunday. And every day is a little better than it was the day before. Love you. It's kind of of like, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Makes that pretty literal, right? (laughs) Amen. (laughs) Like that. Our group was talking also just, I think it was Donna that said, you know, what is it? You know, so where you're giving to, you know, to potentially receive or, you know, whatever it is that you're not using gets taken away. It was a, art we batted around the question of, you know, is that love? Is that joy? Is it money? Is it possession? Um, we didn't really land on an answer. It was kind of like all of the above, but. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What did y'all think about, um, what it means that to the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. I kind of thought that that was where you could replace those words with other information. Um, Like the one who has joy more will be given and the one who has not joy even that will be taken away you know Mm. or other words could fit in there and I told a story and I won't tell the whole story but I had a, a rough upbringing and so I made some poor choices earlier in my life but I always had God and I didn't know I had made poor choices considering I didn't know the difference. And then at some point in my life, I ended one of those choices and found somebody who 
really cherished me and I kept waiting for the other shoe to fall the whole time. <laughs> and it took me, you know, 20 years to really realize this person is never going to be unkind to me and always puts me first and thinks about wonderful things and blesses me. And I think God had that for me all along. I just was impatient. I made other choices that even in those bad choices, I thought I was happy and I still love God and I felt blessed. And now I have a different feeling of what blessed is. If I'd have had this feeling and the reverse, it wouldn't have, I would have felt denied and I would have felt no, <laughs> but the way it happened and the sequence it happened, I always felt blessed. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. You you had and you were given more. Yes. But then how could something be taken away that they don't possess? What do y'all think? Well, our group looked at it as faith that um, if you have faith and you continue that way, that you will be given, you, you will grow in your faith. You will be given more. Whereas the, if you have, you know, just little faith, it's probably going to go, well, down the tube, so to speak. And, um, you know, rather than it being earthly goods. Although, again, we discussed this, I think, perhaps in the second part of the question that it does seem like a lot of the times, the ones that have a lot get a lot more, not necessarily faith, though, but we were talking about worldly goods there. Mm -hmm. um, you know, but we looked at it as Jesus doesn't say whether he's talking about worldly goods or not here. That's does. right. That's right. He doesn't necessarily say that. And it's just like what Julia said with joy. You know, if you look at the good part, the positive part, then you're going to, you're going to get more positive out of it. But if you look at the negative part, you're probably going to be getting, losing the positive more. So. Yeah. One of the things that we were talking about, and I can't remember who it was in our group that mentioned it was um, if you look at a country like Bangladesh, which is an extremely poor country. Um, they are one of the most generous countries in the world when there are disasters in other places. Um, and that sort of speaks to a richness of spirit, um, where even though they have very little and they themselves are often victims of extreme nature disasters, their attitude is one of here, I have something I can share. Not, I have to hang on to this before the next typhoon comes and wipes out my village again. Um, and maybe that's it. <laughs> I saw that play out in my, actually in my um, church this week. Um, in that uh, we had someone su suddenly in need of housing. 
and um, had called around to various church members. They that person had called around to various church members, and um, and then came to us as pastors, and we put kind of out a more broader call, you know, um, to the congregation through the through this the strength team that does that, and um, and the people that stepped up and said, well, this person can stay with us with me for five days. And then another person said, well, they can stay with me for five days after that. Were people in our congregation who actively have experienced homelessness, but happen to have a place to stay right now? Or who actively have experienced poverty and currently already have two other people living in their tiny apartment. I think if you've experienced something like that, you're more sensitive and aware of the need, not as insulated and as some people in a different situation. Yep. And that isn't to cast aspersions on anybody else. It's just to say, I noticed who it was that came up. It's not like they said, this person can live with me forever. It was like, well, I can give five days. It's like the boy with the loaves and fishes, isn't it? Mm -hmm. It's like, I can give this tiny seed. That's what we were talking about in class. I can give this tiny seed. This is all I have. The spirit will do what she wants with it. I wonder too, a thing that you, Pastor Gil, keep reminding us is God wants us to have humility. And so I wonder if it could be tied with if we're humble or if we kind of learn to experience and to live in humility then the wisdom and the understanding of who he really is and who we are in this world and what we're supposed to do becomes more real in our life. But when there is no humility, maybe there is no wisdom, no understanding, no perspective of really who he is or who they are and who we are. So there's maybe that could be a little bit of that continued thing with humility tied with some more wisdom and understanding of the power of who God is and who we are. Mm -hmm. All of these, I think all of these are really core themes, right? We, we are, as we go through scripture, we're finding core themes that get repeated over and over and over. They're told in different ways and they're all connected. As you say, Erica, um, you can't have one without the other. Well, I think that grace enters in there too, because we have received so much grace and we are to share that with others. We are to um, uh, extend grace to others. It goes along with the humility, you know, realizing that this is what we have and, um, but it's not for us to keep, 
you know, to just keep or to share that with others. I mean, and that's what those people in your church did where they extended grace, um, you know, and generosity. And, and it comes, I think it, it speaks a little bit to, to the narrowness of Christianity that would say all that matters is that I have accepted Jesus as my personal savior. I think that's important, <laughs> but being, but, <laughs> you know, there's yeah. a lot more to it. It goes sideways as well. Mm-hmm. So let me, um, let's, I want to go back. I don't want to skip this um, to the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. We've come up with a few ideas. Um, what if we take this these this verse that says to to the person who has who has more will be given to the one who has not even what they have will be taken away. What if we put that right next to Jesus teaching in the Sermon on the Mount that said, "Don't store up treasure on earth; store your treasure in heaven." Think about those two things together. Okay. Think about earthly. All right. We've been, we Christians immediately take these verse, these hard verses that we've been wrestling with and spiritualize them. Okay. Let's draw the line under that. We all get that part. I'm going to talk about physical life now. And think about what Jesus has to say about what we treasure. And think about how Jesus talks about holding what we have with open hands, like physical stuff, like these, like these people who were giving a room to someone in need. But Jesus did say, if if you ha- try to hang on to your treasure here on earth, it's going to rot. Thieves are going to steal it. It's going to get mildewed. It's going to, you know, it's going to be worthless. Um, and and I'm wondering if that's the same thing that he is he's saying here. If he's saying if you can take your physical riches whatever blessings you have and hold them with an open hand, you will find that you will receive more, which is another way of saying your reward is in heaven, right? Your reward is stored in heaven, which he said in, but if you try to hold on to those earthly treasures and you can't get enough and you're going to have to, you know, not share with anybody because you got to keep up with the Joneses, then you will find that it just slips through your fingers. The stock market will go down. <laughs> the things will crash. Things will burn. Somebody will take that job that you thought was yours you'll lose your job, whatever. It's, I think that this hard saying of to the one who has more will be given and to the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. 
I think that perhaps Jesus is just saying the same lesson in another way. Does that make sense at all to anybody? So, so if I'm understanding what you're saying, when Jesus says the person who has not, it's more not that the person doesn't have riches, but that they perceive. Exactly. That That they are living in a spirit of scarcity. my, I, I looked up both of the passages, both the Mark and the Luke passage, and in in the Common English Bible, um, verse um, eight eighteen says, "Therefore, listen carefully. Those who have will receive more, but as for those who don't have, even what they seem to have will be taken away from them." Hmm. Interesting. And I thought, oh, that kind of you know that has to do with like the perception, which kind of is what Marlene brought up, is the perception of what we have. We, you th- don't think you have anything, but you have plenty. And um, so even what they seem to have will be taken away. Um, so again, like I said, that, that perception thing, uh, it resonates. A, a story I shared with our group is that... Um, I have a friend who passed away recently and at the ends of all of his emails and often when he was talking about things, he would finish his emails with TGDD, thank God for dirty dishes, because if he had dirty dishes, it meant he had dishes and he had something to put on his dishes. So again, it's a perception thing of what he had in his life. You know, it's just kind of like getting up and saying, I have to do the laundry, but at least I have somewhere to do the laundry and I have laundry to do. So uh, that's kind of, you know, what we think about what we have. Mm-hmm. And it all, and, and that is beautiful. And it, and it also ties in with realizing that what we have could be gone in an instant, Right. And so why are we holding on to it so hard, right? Why we, we just cannot let ourselves, we should not let ourselves put some value on those things, you know? Enjoying them is one thing. Putting value on them is something else again. It definitely resonates with me, the having perspective. And I keep going back to if we have, if we hold God with an open hand, then I think we experience more understanding of their goodness, their, their unconditional love. We, we start to move out of the box that we have kept God in, and we just experience this freedom, this new who they are with knowing that what I know today is not it, <laughs> that there is more to keep learning and growing. And yet I feel like if we do hold God kind of in that box or with my fist tight, then that's where the fear comes in. That's where the sense of like, I have to make sure everybody does it 
the way I know, because then they're not going to experience his kingdom or they're going to go to eternal hell. Like it, it becomes, I, I feel like I'm experiencing this even with my family. I, I am holding who God is with an open hand, hoping and praying that I can continue to know them more and experience more freedom. Whereas I can see how some people out of their own fear for our salvation, it's like, no, you got to do it this way. And you're not living God's purpose because of this and that. And because you're living this life, you're going to go to eternal hell. And I feel like that's, that's where they're missing out on this freedom and this perspective that he's willing to show Mm -hmm. those who hold them with that open hand knowing that we don't have the answer there's there's so much more so then you can kind of just enjoy whatever each day brings of who he is or who they are i don't know i just amen this has been super helpful too he said stay in this day live this day let tomorrow worry about tomorrow enjoy what god has brought this day Uh, yeah amen yeah beautiful so we're we'll 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 finish up here um and i have i i want to read you a a small passage that i deleted so that we could um just uh put it in here after we had a chance to talk about but in this whole passage where jesus was talking about this um god said you know the kingdom of god is like a seed somebody casts during the day. And when they go to bed at night, the seed sprouts and grows and grows and eventually yields a harvest. I think Jesus is saying the kingdom of heaven is not about you or your power or your ability to do anything. In fact, you help the most. When you let God be God, because the natural way of God is to give abundant blessing without anything necessary on your part, except letting go of your own power and tight fistedness. Mm -hmm. Amen. Amen. All right. We'll see y'all next week. I love you all. Safe travels, Helen and Erica. Take care, everybody. (laughs) Bye. 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 Love you guys. Bye bye.